Hi, and welcome to Pharmacy Internet Radio, also known as Pharmacy IR. I am Kat Collins, your host. I'm a P3 pharmacy student at Campbell University. Um, I'm joined today by my co-host, Dr. Scott Perkins, who is the co-director of Drug Information and a assistant clinical professor at Campbell University. How are you doing? Hey, I'm doing well, Kat. How are you? Doing pretty good. That's great. We've finally made it to our first inaugural episode of the podcast. Pretty excited. I think it's turned out pretty well. I do too. Especially since... uh since we sort of came up with this from scratch. Yeah, I think it's been a, a work in the making, so to speak, for the yeah. past couple months. I mean, you started, we start, really started this idea when you came uh, and did an OSCE mm-hmm. uh, with me in my office. And you finished and you said, hey, I have an idea for a podcast. And I said, great, I have an idea for a video production that we can, we can potentially tie the two together. Yeah. And uh, over the past couple months, we've, we've done that. We've worked really hard. So congratulations. Yeah, I, I think this is going to be something really useful for students and uh, hopefully also useful for some pharmacists or anyone else out there that's interested in uh, pharmacy. Yeah. So um, we're really hoping to bring the different specialties of pharmacy um, to s- students and uh, help them understand really what options they have as they go out there and start their careers. Yeah. One of the things that we did when we started was we, we uh, ended up doing a focus group. Mm-hmm. And one of the th- some of the feedback that we got when we proposed the idea of having experts on and um, interviewing with people was that they liked they liked that idea and they wanted to get some more information about you know pharmacists as regular people as well mm-hmm. as far as like well how did you get into your particular field and what do you find interesting about that so yeah I'm absolutely. excited for it. I think that we've got a pretty a recipe for success as yes. they say so um, uh, so today we're going to be bringing you a uh, interview with Dr. Beth Mills. Uh, Dr. Mills is a ambulatory care pharmacist uh, with a specialty in diabetes management um, who works at the Benson Area Medical Center in Benson, North Carolina. So, Without further ado, let's do it. Welcome to Drug Ciphers, where we break down the generic or brand names of drugs to find hidden meanings, or we create our own. The goal is to help you remember how drugs work so you can free up some of that important brain space for other stuff. Repaglinide is an anti-diabetic medication that belongs to the drug class known as the metaglitinides. These drugs work by stimulating the pancreatic beta cells to release insulin. The brand name Prandin is a great clue on how to use these medications safely. Prandin comes from the Latin word prandium, which means a lunch or late breakfast. Ever heard the term postprandial glucose? This refers to the blood glucose spike that you get after you eat a meal. Since prandin stimulates the release of insulin regardless of meals, it's important to take it only when eating a meal. If a patient skips their meal but takes their scheduled dose of prandin, it will still stimulate insulin release and puts them at risk of hypoglycemia. So remember, having a prandium, take your prandin, Skipping a prandium, skip the prandin. A newer diabetes medication is known as the SGLT2 inhibitors. These drugs work by blocking the SGLT2 transport protein found in the kidneys to reabsorb any glucose that was filtered by the glomerulus. Think of it as a safety net if the glomerulus fails to do its job. Usually this is a good thing, so our body can use all of its precious glucose to fuel cells. However, In diabetes, we have way too much blood glucose, and it's okay to lose some of it through the urine. All the SGLT2 inhibitors have the same suffix, flozin. We can use this to help remember how these drugs work. Just remember, the flozins allow 
glucose to flow through the kidneys and out into the urine. We can also use this hidden meaning to help remember some of the side effects of the medication. People who take Flozins have to urinate a lot. This is because the glucose increases the osmolarity of the urine, which draws water into the urine, producing a much higher volume. So remember, patients on Flozins have a heavy flow and need to go. That's it for our drug cipher. Welcome back to our podcast. Uh, I'm Kat Collins, and I'm really excited today to have uh, Dr. Beth Mills with us. Uh, Dr. Mills received her PharmD from Campbell University in 1998 and went on to complete a primary care residency with a diabetes management focus um, at Wilson Community Health Center. Um, today, Dr. Mills is a clinical assistant professor for pharmacy practice, and she is also the residency director for the PGY2 uh, ambulatory care residency with uh, Campbell University. Um, in addition, she is a board certified AmCare pharmacist and a certified diabetes educator at the Benson Area Medical Center. Dr. Mills, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So um, we'd love to talk a little bit about sort of just your life, how you came into pharmacy, how you grew up. and what brought you to uh, the job that you do now, so. Okay, well, I was originally, I was born in North Carolina, and, um, but we moved uh, around a lot. So um, my dad was in pharmaceutical industry, and so we moved every two to three years, and I've lived all over the United States. I've lived in Kansas, I've lived in Illinois, lived in Puerto Rico for a little oh, wow. while. Um, so um, I got a nice broad look at the United States, um, but we did eventually land back in North Carolina, and I, um, when it was time for me to go to college, I originally thought I would be a math teacher and mm -hmm. I wanted, my goal was to become a, a high school math teacher. So I, um, in undergrad, I um, focused on math. <laughs> and so uh, after about a year, my dad said, you know what, I think that pharmacy would be a good career for you because he was in the industry and mm -hmm. he worked with a lot of female pharmacists that he thought it would be a good career for a female in general. Um, uh, so he recommended that and I applied at Campbell and got in. So I only applied to one school and that was Campbell because I was already here and I loved it and I didn't really, I, and I lived in Garner so I was commuting um, and so, and I also had met my husband at the time and was really hoping to stay close to home. Um, so then um, that was in 1994 that I got into pharmacy school. So Great. that was my little trip around the world. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell me a little bit about who you were as a student. Um, oh, Lord. I was the stress wad. Um, everything was about the grades. Um, I was, I felt like I worked around the clock. I didn't mm -hmm. sleep much. And I actually worked three jobs while I was in pharmacy school because wow. Because I waited so long to go to college, my parents felt like that I kind of gave up my right for them to pay for me to go to school. So mm -hmm. I was responsible for my whole entire education. Um, plus, I had two brothers that were in college and my mom went back to school at the same time. So my dad was like, I've got two in college and my mom was at Meredith. So that cost so much money. And he said, you're just going to have to do it on your own, which I did. Um, I, they did let me live with him. So that was nice. Yeah. Um, so I... Um, worked as a technician at Walmart part-time in the evenings and then every other weekend. And then I also worked at Wake Med Carry as a technician 
every other weekend. So I worked every weekend as a technician somewhere. And then I also taught organic chemistry lab here. So wow. I had three jobs. But as a student, as far as what I was involved in, I was very heavily involved in APHA, ASP. Um, I had a regional um, uh, regional position. So I was the reg- regional major coordinator, meeting coordinator, I guess. And so the year that I was in school or most active in ASP, it was our job or our turn in the region to host the big, huge mid-year meeting. And so I coordinated the whole entire meeting. We hosted it. We had it in Raleigh. You know, the whole region came and, but I had so much help. I had the, uh, we got everybody recruited. We had a huge team together and it went off without a hitch. It was it was very stressful, but it was really yeah, cool. I'm sure we had it. Yes, it was very rewarding. Um, other things, um, I had you know leadership roles, and I was the president of the class one year, vice president of the class one year. I was involved in you know student government, um, involved in SSHP. I, I was a um, delegate at national meetings a couple of times. I went to all the meetings, yeah. all the meetings. <laughs> Yes, we had a lot of fun. It's a good experience yes. to get to go to those yes. and see how it how it all plays out. Yeah. So welcome to the Drug Limerick Challenge. Um, this is a short game show where we invite a guest on. Um, today we have uh, Sarah Jones. She's about she's my fourth year pharmacy student on my rotation. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you. It's good to be here. Yeah. So we we ask our guests. Um, to guess a drug based off of a, rim- a limerick that we are, we're going to read. Um, and these are limericks that are sometimes created by me, sometimes created by our fourth year students on rotation. Um, today we've got an, an especially fun limerick. It's my favorite one. got to start off strong. Um, so I'll, I'll read that to you in just a minute. Um, and you're going to have the awesome opportunity for a coffee-infused prize from our coffee um, vendor downstairs. So get excited. How are you doing today, though? Doing very well, thank you. Excellent, excellent. So you're on rotations. Yes. So you're on DI right now. You're, we're halfway through. Yes. Uh, you just finished some residency interviews. Yes, yes, um, I did. What are you looking forward to before graduation? What is, what, what before besides graduation, what are you looking forward to going, going into uh, next? Well, definitely match day. Um, I think that's slimming for all of us, you know, that are applying to residencies. Yeah. So I need to kind of see what those results are. And ultimately, you know, just trying to figure out, you know, where exactly I'm supposed to be as far as jobs in general. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's probably what I'm looking most forward to is kind of that next step sure. after graduation. So you're, you're, you're looking forward to one of the most nerve-wracking days of all time. I get it. I get it. <laughs> I, don't, I don't do well with patience, so just at least knowing <laughs> either way will be good. Get through it. I love it. I love it. All right. Well, are you ready for this? Yes. I'm ready as well. So I'm going to go ahead and read the limerick. I'll give you a couple minutes to think about it and think about what, about what it might be. If you have some questions, you can, you can ask me a question. I think you got this, though. Okay. I believe in you. All right, 10, 15, 20, how does it rank? Kinetic doses, a G-pause tank. 10 per min go slow, C diff, PO. Mud kills MRSA, so give them, and then the drug name rhymes, so we'll do it one more time. 10, 15, 20, how does it rank? Kinetic doses, a G-pause tank. 10 per min go slow, C diff, PO, mud kills MRSA, so give them, and it's blank. Is the answer 
Wait, it's like, not a full drug name. It's an abbreviated drug name. So we'll, we'll break it down. It's really hard to do this when you don't get to see them. Yeah, so I mean, I was thinking initially Vang. Yeah. Okay, okay. It's okay. I was like, yeah, but Vang yeah. doesn't rhyme with MRSA, so I was trying to like. So it rhymes with the first two, so uh, let's, do it, let's do it one more time now okay, that you guessed okay. it right. Good work. You get, you get a wonderful coffee flavored prize. Yes. Um, or you don't like coffee. So oh, it's you're, okay. you're not a caffeine person, so we'll yeah. do something else. Yeah. I like that. Um, so 10, 15, 20. So I'm thinking of 10 to 15, 15 to 20 are yeah, typical exactly. bank troughs. Um, and then we're thinking, and then the next line is, how does it rank? Um, so we're, I guess what I'm trying to do there is to say, like, well, based off the severity of our infection, the different mm. types of infections, so then, how does it rank yep. within these um, uh, different trough levels? Kinetic doses. It has, it's a G pos tank, so it's very strong against gram positive bacteria. Right. Um, we typically, a lot of times, give it, according to the manufacturer, about um, 10 per minute. We go slow typically so, to mm -hmm. avoid uh, red man syndrome. Yep. For C. diff, we give it by mouth. C. diff, PO. Uh, it used to be called Mississippi mud. And then, so the last line is so give them Vank. So Vank is obviously sometimes an abbreviation for Vankamycin. Right, right. So good job. Well, thank you. Congratulations. Awesome. Success. Successful. <laughs> well, congrats, um, thank you for watching this segment um, on our podcast, and we'll get you back to the show. Welcome back. We're here with Dr. Mills. Dr. Mills, uh, we'd like to get a little bit into what you do now, uh, the aspects of your current job, and sort of your path from residency to your current position. Okay. So when I finished my residency, um, there were not a lot of ambulatory care jobs available in the state of North Carolina or really in the United States. It was fairly new mm -hmm. uh, concept. So um, I had a, a pretty extensive history with Walmart already. I had worked there as a technician and then also uh, as a pharmacist um, moonlighting while I was doing my residency. And so I just went ahead and stayed on at Walmart, um, which I loved. Um, I stayed there in many different, I moved around from store to store, but I finally landed in Nightdale as a pharmacy manager, and I was in that role for about six years. Um, while I was there, um, I realized that I missed the clinical training that I had acquired, and I wanted to do more clinical work. And um, I was very fortunate to meet uh, a good friend of mine, um, Michelle Jacobs, who she had just started her very her own business. Um, she was a very one of the very first CPPs in the state of North Carolina, and so she was started a business where she went into doctors' offices. She would go into a doctor's office one day a week, and they would have patients scheduled to see her for mm -hmm. whether it be diabetes, lipids, anticoag, whatever. But she became so busy and acquired more doctors' offices than she could handle. So she brought me on. And I was able to do that one full day every other week. So Walmart was gracious enough to, to let me work my schedule out that way. Um, I did that for about a year and a half. And then um, a position came available at an independent pharmacy in Fuquay Verena. It's called Medicap Pharmacy at the time, uh, which is a franchise. It was This one was owned by Cardinal Health. And so that was actually better <laughs> because they let me come in and basically do whatever I wanted. So what I wanted to do was my clinical stuff. So I would um, 
do all the traditional dispensing um, parts of the job in the morning, and then I would I started a clinic, diabetes uh, specialty care clinic, and also an obesity management clinic. And um, so I would schedule patients in the afternoons. I had advanced community pharmacy students from Campbell who would come, um, and they would help me with my patient load. Um, we did. We started a vaccine administration. So this was when vaccines were right. just getting. It's pharmacists were just getting ready. Yeah, pharmacists were just getting um, their feet wet with administering vaccines, um, and MTM. So we had a lot of new clinical roles that we were trying to take on. Um, but then. Um, Cardinal sold my store, <laughs> so yeah, I was a little upset about that, but then um, I started, I ventured out to something that I wasn't very comfortable with, and that was hospital pharmacy. There was a position available, and it was ambulatory care, but you still had to do a lot of inpatient um, work as well, so um, I became the ambulatory care team leader at Rex, and it was mostly anticoagulation, so I all I knew was diabetes and weight loss and nutrition, and um, there was none of that in this new role. So I had to learn a whole new clinical trade, I guess, whatever. Mm-hmm. I had to, to learn new skills. Mm-hmm. And um, so I was there for about three years, and then the position at Campbell uh, was posted, and I thought that would be good for me. That's your roots. Well, yeah, because I always wanted to teach anyway. And so I thought this would be a win-win that I would. Plus, I knew that I was going to be able to manage diabetes in this new role. And so, um, you know, that that was where my heart was anyway. So I, and now I can do both or all of it. I can do weight loss management. I can manage anticoagulation. I can manage diabetes. And now we've just recently taken on um we perform all the pulmonary function testing in the clinic, um, which is, we do a lot. Uh, So we do all the spirometry, sorry. Um, We diagnose COPD, asthma, we manage that now too. So it's, we have a lot going on. And you've been, you've been at the Benson Area Medical Center for about five years now? Six years. Six years. Yes. Um, So what are, what are the main, well, you've sort of gone over the main features of your job, but what do you think makes your practice site unique from other uh, Amcare pharmacist practice sites? Mm, well, if I were to compare to some of the ones, the main ones that I know of, I would say that we're a little busier. Um, <laughs> and that's probably my fault because I don't say no very well. And so um, we we have a very, very busy patient load. I see, I, I'm in clinic all day on Tuesdays and Thursdays and two half days. So in that time period, we jam pack it as full of many patients we can. And right now, to get on my schedule at the clinic, we're booked out till May. Wow. So it's if patients call and they cancel their appointment, it's almost impossible for me to get them in any sooner than three months down the road or four months down the road because we are so busy. Um, I think that what's unique too is our relationship with our providers. Mm-hmm. Our providers, we do something called shared visits, which not not all the clinics do that. So that means that we will see we schedule patients with us and the provider at the same time, okay. and or back to back is a better way to explain it. So the patients will come in and they will meet with us. And then we, 
you know, we actually build the whole entire visit. We do all the documenting. We um, assess labs. We assess their point of care results, and then we make a plan. And then we will hand off to the providers and then the provider will go in and they basically just go in and bless the visit. You know, they just go in and say, "Uh, yeah, well, whatever she said, that's what we want you to do. Okay. And the providers love that. Right. Um, because it helps them move along through their schedule because they have a quota to meet every day. And if, you know, this one patient could have taken 30 minutes out of their time when now it's only going to take five. So they can pretty much see more patients in the day if we have a lot of patients on their schedule for that day. Um, and I think another thing that's really unique is the fact that we do perform all the spirometry. Um, not a lot of care clinics actually do that part of, you know, yeah. and some people might say, well, I don't, you know, I don't want to do that. Anybody could do that. But it really helps you understand what those values mean, FEV1 and sure. FEC, and how to evaluate that and, and, and you know, interpret that and then what to do with those. And so instead of just looking at results, you're actually watching the patient give those results. Yeah. You know. More hands-on. More hands-on. The students love it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what are some of the challenges that you think ambulatory care is facing today or diabetes management or any of the conditions that you uh, well, treat? Well, for diabetes specifically, I think the biggest challenge right now is the, the rising cost of medications. Mm-hmm. Um, the insulin, and I'm sure you've seen it on the news lately about how it's just the astronomical prices, the prices of insulins have gone up and up and up. Patients are having to skip doses to make Mm -hmm. their insulin stretch longer. Um, And it's, I mean, insulin, one insulin can cost up to $1,000 in one month. And we have patients on multiple of those. You know, we have them on a GLP-1 receptor agonist, and we have them on a basal insulin, and we have them on all these other very expensive medications. We used to say that a patient would have to spend about, would spend about $2,500 a year on their diabetes supplies and medications. That's probably $10,000 now or more. So, you know, in just 20 years, that has gone way up. And it becomes really a challenge because especially if you have patients that don't have insurance or if you have patients that have insurance but they have a really high deductible, sure, yeah. um, that becomes a challenge. Um, I think another challenge um, is just the sheer number of medications that are hitting the market right now and that I know are in the pipeline. Mm-hmm. Um, so where physicians felt pretty comfortable managing diabetes before they are relying on pharmacists more and more. So it's not, not so much a challenge for us, but I think just for the care of a diabetes patient in general, that there's, they're not able to keep up with all of the drugs. I mean, there are so many drugs on the market and so many different classes. And then just in each class, there's so many nuances to all the different drugs. Maybe this drug could, you know, might cause acute kidney injury, but this one really doesn't. So, you know, that's good for us because we are the drug experts, obviously. And so we can know the ins and outs of all of those medications Mm -hmm. and help them out. But the more drugs that come on the market, it's going to be even more challenging. Sure. Yeah. Um, How do you integrate on the healthcare team and sort of what do your colleagues come to you the most for? Um, Besides diabetes (laughs) and weight loss. Uh, drug drug interactions is the number one question that I get and uh, 
so my I just had two students start yesterday, mm-hmm. and we were having orientation in, in the little patient education room. And no lie, I had three providers standing in line with their computers <laughs> saying, can I ask you a question? So most of them are drug-drug interaction, and I would yeah. say QT prolongation and serotonin syndrome are going to be the top hits mm-hmm. that we get. Um, the other thing is going to be on just drug therapy for psych stuff. Um, so probably depression and bipolar disorder are mm-hmm. going to be number f- three and four after diabetes and, and obesity. Um, so because they feel so uncomfortable with it and they feel like they just need confirmation that they're making a decision that doesn't seem really outlandish or something, sure. you know? Yeah. So they're like, am I going to kill my patient if yes. I do this? You know, they just want you to say, no, I think it'll be okay. Yeah. Um, and they get all of these pop-ups in the system that we use that make them feel like every drug interaction is going is actually going to kill their patient. Right. So, you know, it's nice for us to be able to, to say, okay, well, I know it says it's a drug interaction, but really here's what the data shows. And mm-hmm. so, you know, we try to always go to the evidence and say this is, there was a study that showed mm-hmm. that it increased the concentrations by this or whatever. That's great. Um, what drugs, I guess you've spoke a little bit about drugs in the pipeline. What drugs uh, are on the horizon that you think are, are just going to change your practice, if any? Um, I think that, well, there's some oral formulation of GLP-1 that I think are going to be, you know, not necessarily change my practice, mm-hmm. but I think that we definitely we won't have to do as much training for injection sure. technique and things like that. Um, there is an oral insulin in the pipeline, so I've not heard that it's going to be. I've not heard that it's that successful so far. So we'll see. Uh, that would be a game changer if you know, depending on what type of patient would be a candidate for that. Mm-hmm. So type one probably not. I would think. Um, we do have the inhaled insulin, and we thought right. that was going to be a game changer, but that's, that was a big let it was down. a it was a right. flop. Um, I think that it's going to be more about the technology instead of the drugs. So with this, the new continuous glucose monitors and mm-hmm. what we call the flash glucose monitoring system. So you have the continuous ones that read continuously, but then mm-hmm. you also have the one like the Freestyle Libre, where it will if you s- scan it. And it'll flash a number, and that's your glucose at that time, but Mm -hmm. it doesn't continuously read. Um, Those, I think, are going to be a game changer. And the insulin pump technology is really, um, they're really getting advanced, and we're getting closer and closer to not really a true artificial pancreas, but as close as you can get. Something close to it. Yeah. Um, I'm going to put you on the spot here. Uh, If you had to create a formulary for uh, to treat the patients that you see and you could only pick five drugs what would you pick is this for diabetes management sure we'll just go with diabetes with diabetes management does this mean that the medications are affordable for the patients like we're giving them cost is not an issue issue. okay well i definitely would have to have well insulin would have to be on there um GLP-1 receptor agonists would definitely be on there just because of all the cardiovascular data that they have. And um, definitely would not be a TZD or a <laughs> sulfonuria. Um, all right, so I got insulin, I got GLP-1. SGLT-2 inhibitors are probably, they're taking 
you know, a big chunk of the market right now. And they actually are showing a lot of benefit and they have cart positive cardiovascular data. So mm-hmm. we'll probably go with that. Um, metformin, obviously would have to be on yeah, there. Number one. Yeah. Uh, I think we could live with all with those four probably oh, and wow. be good. We're going a fifth. She's yeah. confident. In those I'm confident answers. in those four and those answers. Yes. Um, all right. So just to finish up, I want to ask a few questions. And this is uh, a little selfish of me because I do have you on rotation. But um, what advice do you have? So, so what advice do you have for students interested in that specialty? Um, and, and what kind of things do students really struggle with when they come on your rotation? Um, okay. So what do students struggle with the most is probably knowing the drugs. Uh, just because there's so many and um, however the American Diabetes Association their newest um, standards that they've just released this actually just released them in January um, they put out a new algorithm like a decision tree that is phenomenal it's it's you know, I used to say, go to the ACE for the drugs but go to ADA for everything else mm-hmm. well now the ADA their dosing decision algorithm is is far superior now, I think, than the ACE guidelines. So I don't even go to those anymore. Um, and they really guide you onto a drug therapy. You know, if the patient has this, then you're gonna choose this and this. Mm-hmm. But if they have heart failure, you're gonna choose SGLT2 inhibitors. But let's say they have, you know, poor kidney function, then you're going to have to go here. But if cost is an issue, then you're really only limited to these four over here. So it really guides you. And, of course, GLP-1 receptor agonists and SGLT-2 inhibitors are almost in every category. Mm -hmm. So you know that if you're going to come on rotation with me, you better know those, right? And you should know metformin, right? Um, I think that the other thing that students struggle with is we see a lot of advanced diabetes patients, meaning that they have type 1, they're on an insulin pump, or they're on multiple injections per day, and we have to do a lot of titration and adjusting and, you know, calculating the rule of 1800 Mm -hmm. and the rule of 500. And so all of that stuff comes barreling back in and the students are a little overwhelmed. Um, But I think that that's the biggest issue. I think that I've been pleasantly surprised at how well students do counseling patients. Mm Um, I think we must have done a really good job of, you know, getting students prepared to teach a patient how to administer insulin, how to draw insulin out of a, a vial with a syringe or how to use an inhaler. Um, and most of my students feel, seem to feel very comfortable communicating with student, I mean, with uh, patients mm-hmm. and with providers. So I think the biggest hurdle is just knowing the drugs and the pathophysiology behind that. Um, as far as how to prepare, um, study, no, (laughs) Uh, um, I have a wiki page. And so before you come on site with me, I will share that with you. And on there I have resources. I have links to websites. I have articles that you should read. Um, I have, um, pretty much everything to get you started, but really, if you want to be prepared now, if you've started being prepared now, I would just say review the guidelines. Yeah. Um, everything that we do is evidence-based, or we try to make it evidence-based. Um, recall how to write a poem, because you will definitely write some of those. We do three, so each student has to do one every week, up to three. Okay. Yeah, so we learn, we do a lot of 
evidence-based medicine. Well, that's always good. That's what we strive for. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Well, thank you so much for joining us today. It was great uh, getting to talk about your practice and um, thanks for tuning in. Thank you. Hello, my name is Evan Lucas here to share with you a clinical research moment for you today. Um, In this segment, we'll be going over some pertinent literature review and just some good old-fashioned journal club. So let's jump right in. Uh, Today's journal is from Is Diabetes Care, and we're looking at the February 2019 issue and a little study that looked at the class-wide cardiovascular effects of the SGLT2 inhibitors for diabetes mellitus and type 2 and specifically dupagliflozin. So let me give you some background because this is a pretty cool study and the way they uh, were able to process and work through the data was really fascinating. So in 2008, the Centers for Drug Evaluation Research, basically within the FDA, issued a guidance saying that all new approved diabetic uh, meds would have to have new data supporting their cardiovascular risks and benefits. So that meant that all these studies for new drugs that came out past that time from 2008 onward had to have millions of dollars of new data to support their claims and to help show that they were cardiovascular, that they were efficacious on a cardiovascular level. So one of these studies, which was conducted again by all different manufacturers, was done by AstraZeneca and they looked at one of their products, Xenotide, and its effects on um, cardiovascular composite outcomes. It was called the Excel study. So someone at AstraZeneca, I guess, had the bright idea, and they said, well, if we can do this with, we were spending all this money, millions of dollars to do this study, the Excel study, then couldn't we take some of the patients in that study and maybe leverage some of that into another study for another product that we have called Dipagoflozin, or Farsiga? And they were able to do this, and what this study basically was, was they we're able to say, okay, let's provide, get more bang for our buck and we're gonna take the placebo arm of this other trial and we're gonna break it up and be able to see that maybe we could find some effects and some, kind of some subclinical effects within this um, subpopulation by doing a post hoc case control analysis. So other research previously had shown cardiovascular benefits so like the Impareg trial came along in 2015 and showed benefits for impagliflozin. So based on the previous literature and where they were today with all this data from the Excel study, they were able to start making a transition and see if they could use what they had to get what they wanted, which was more data and more information on cardiovascular risk and benefits of their drugs. Let's look at the design of this trial. So again, it was a post hoc analysis done in a case control manner of the placebo arm of the Excel trial. And the placebo arm of the Excel trial was not just like a, a sugar pill that was given to patients. It was an active control because we don't want people with diabetes to not have the medications that they so desperately need. So of the 7,396 participants in the placebo arm, 786 used an SGLT2 antagonist, 385 of those used dipagliflozin. Um, so what they looked at was three different endpoints here. They wanted to see the time to first composite uh, mean adverse cardiovascular events. So these were three endpoints bundled into one. So we had cardiovascular death on the one hand, non-fatal MI on the other, and finally non-fatal um, CVA or stroke. So death, heart attack, stroke. All three of those mixed into one, your cardiovascular endpoints. And then the second endpoint was the time to the first composite all-cause mortality. So did someone die and why, basically. 
Um, the third one was a change in GFR. So they looked in using the MDRD equation to estimate patients' renal function and saw how that changed and if they could uh, predict or show some sort of treatment effect from based on that change. And there was other exploratory endpoints pursued, which we won't cover here, but you're welcome to pursue at your leisure. So patients that were in the placebo group, but not on an SGLT2. Those served as the matches for the patients that were. So let's look at some of the results of this study. The three endpoints we're going to look at are, are consistent with what we talked about earlier. So major adverse cardiovascular events is our first one. So let's look at that. There was no statistical significance found among the groups. So basically, uh, there was no significant difference between those who were on an SGLT2 or on dapagliflozin and those that were not in terms of their cardiovascular risk. Now, they reevaluated this endpoint later in like a, another analysis and looked at people that had prior cardiovascular disease versus those that did not. When they did this, it parsed out a little bit differently with significance emerging in some groups. So they saw in that analysis that significance was seen when people were on an SGLT2 versus not and did not have cardiovascular disease. So the next endpoint was all-cause mortality, and we did see some significance there. It was um, reduced by like 0.48, so the hazard ratio was 0.48 for people that were had any SGLT2 use versus no SGLT2. So when you used an SGLT2, you had a, a less likelihood of reaching an all-cause mortality endpoint than you would if you were on if you were not on an SGLT2. And both an unadjusted and an adjusted hazard ratio showed the same um, statistical significance. And this significance did disappear though when dapagliflozin was analyzed by itself. So the third endpoint was our renal endpoint and they looked again at that GFR change. So this is more of a treatment effect that was reported. And there was a treatment effect of an increase in 1.78 uh, points per year if you were on um, any SGLT2, and also on dapagliflozin alone, you would improve renal function by 2.28 points per year. Both of those showed uh, statistically significant p-values. Uh, p Let's look at some of the conclusions for this study. So the pros of the study was that it showed a class effect for all SGLT2s in terms of their cardiovascular benefit, that there may be something to be said of their cardioprotective and possibly renoprotective uh, effects. Renal benefit was shown to be consistent among the prior research as well, and cardiovascular protection was shown um, in primary prevention, meaning that um, those without the cardiovascular risk, what we talked about, that they would have a cardioprotective effect on the SGLT2s. So that may have um, increased benefits and increased uh, awareness for that in the future in, in practice. The cons of this study was that these cohorts that were matched were smaller than real life and were smaller than some of the studies that had been done. The strength of evidence may not be as strong because you have some time bias and some imbalance in follow-up. So in summation, the SGLT2s appear to have these class-wide cardiovascular and renoprotective benefits, especially in those who are younger with no prior cardiovascular events. More studies could be done to analyze this in the future, but this is very clinically relevant and should be considered in patient care. And on a clinical research note, this study really shows that how companies are able to use this new FDA kind of big data environment that we have to basically find a current trial and use it to provide research about another future trial. 
and therefore save money and time without uh, jeopardizing patient health. So for your clinical research moment today, I'm Evan Lucas. Thank you. Oh, well, that's the first episode in the books. How did you think it went? I thought it went pretty good. Yeah, yeah Beth was gracious enough to come on and, and be our first guest. Um, and it was very interesting to hear about her story getting into pharmacy and um, kind of working initially with diabetes and then branching out what she does to where she's overwhelmed a lot. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I, I, wouldn't ima- I wouldn't imagine anything less with Dr. Mills. When she gets into something, she wants to continue to try and try and try and do her best. So yeah. it was how, great. That's how I think all of us in pharmacy tend to be. Yeah, absolutely. Overachievers. Yeah, well, we're interested in, in hearing a little bit more about um, our listeners and our viewers and maybe what we can do uh, in this podcast to improve it. So there's a survey link. It's actually um, uh, in the description below the video. So please take that, fill that out and uh, tell us what we can do to potentially improve the podcast. Uh, other things that you might want to be that we could potentially include in here as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so that would be wonderful. So. Yeah. Um, So please join us next month for another immediate release.